Welcome, welcome, everybody. Thank you for downloading another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm Joe Cook. I'm your host, and I'm here actually alone today for the first time. I'm not joined by any of my usual guests, but today is a also a special episode. It is a listener question special. I'm going to be... I've solicited some of your questions on social media and through the email address, which is always available here at the podcast, wigs for wigs W-I-G-S-F-O-R-W-H-I-G-S at gmail.com. I asked for your questions about history, and today I'm going to tackle some of those that you've submitted. So stick around, and I will be right back to answer some of your questions here on Wigs for Wigs. All right, we are back here on, or I am back here on Wigs for Wigs, and I'm going to be answering a few of your questions today. So I'm just going to take these one by one. Hopefully you all learned something from this. If you do have other questions, please feel free to submit them to me, and I'll answer them on a future episode. But let's get to it here, a little summer learning. So I'm going to kick off here. I have a question from listener Tony. And Tony wants to know uh, if I know of any slaveholders who turned against slavery and purposely tried to save African Americans from the horrors of slavery, kind of like an Oscar Schindler of slavery. Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I well, there is somebody who comes to mind. Uh, I'm not sure. I have some thoughts on this person, but I'll. Let me give you his story. Uh, this is a guy named Charles uh, Charles Colcock Jones. Charles Colcock Jones was from Georgia or Alabama, I believe, somewhere in the deep south, in those southeastern states. I believe he was from Georgia. and But he was educated in the north. He came up north. He got an education uh, in Massachusetts. He went to school at Princeton. And he was training to be a minister, I believe, as a Presbyterian, um, which would make sense because Princeton historically was connected with the Presbyterians. So that's probably what it was. But while he was living in the North, he began seriously examining the morality of slavery. By the time he returned to the South, he was ardently opposed to slavery on moral and religious grounds. Well, at least in his private life. The bizarre thing is that he did not decide to set free any of his slaves. He owned a bunch. He was from a wealthy, prominent family. Like I said, I I believe in Georgia. Uh, He continued to own a plantation. He had inherited it from his father uh, and kept all his slaves on it and even publicly became a very outspoken and widely published defender of the institution of slavery. However, he was determined that on his own plantation, he would give his slaves religious education and literacy education, which we know was illegal in every southern state. Um, They did not want slaves. This is by the 1840s. They did not want them being educated, being made into Christians There was starting to be a religious debate within the Christian community about whether you could own a black person as a slave if they were a fellow Christian. Uh, There was also the fear that 
black churches and black literacy was leading to slave revolts as giving a, uh, a place to organize slave revolts. But here you have this guy, Jones. He is educating his slaves. He's teaching them about Christianity. Uh, again, he is a minister while also owning a plantation. And he decided he would also treat them, and, and this is the part where I have some, some trouble with Jones, that he would treat them kindly. Now, what, we, what he means by kindly, what the historical record means by kindly, uh, not entirely clear. Uh, but as kindly, you know, I'm putting that word in air quotes, as possible while still owning people as slaves. Uh, and he believed that it would be better for them than setting them free. Now, there is a bit, you know, paternalism reeks in this. This is part of the, the awful pro-slavery argument that everybody from John Calhoun on down made in the South, that slaves were, black people were naturally subordinate, that it was best for them to be taken care of by white people to be in a subordinate place. But this guy Jones, you know, whatever it is that he was doing, gained some notoriety as somebody who was actively trying to treat his slaves in a moral way, in some kind of uh, really paternalistic way. You know, it would have been nicer if he just set them free, but uh, he was noted by, by people around him as treating his slaves not as severely as others. And this is something that we know that slave owners did. They, they monitored, they watched, and judged how their neighbors treated their slaves. A very famous case of this is with Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant, who, of course, was originally from the North, married Julia Dent. Julia Dent came from a wealthy Missouri family that owned slaves. After Ulysses S. Grant was drummed out of the army because of his drinking, he and his wife moved to Hardscrabble, which is the little farm that uh, Mr. Dent, uh, Julia's father, gave to them. Uh, and along with that, Mr. Dent gave them a few slaves. And Ulysses S. Grant was notorious among his neighbors, among his white Missouri slave-owning neighbors, for being far too kind to his slaves that he wouldn't whip them, he wouldn't beat them, he didn't separate families and sell them away. Um, so again, this is something we know that Southerners were doing. They were watching how their neighbors treated their slaves. And this Charles Colcock Jones is another one who, like Grant, was, was judged harshly by his fellow white Southerners for his treatment of his slaves. Um, a large number of Colcock Joneses letters and those of his family have been published. They are out there. Uh, they're interesting to read if you're interested in this subject. It is a bit revealing, though, that this guy who decided slavery was so evil still thought he knew what was best for black people and continued to keep them as slaves and publicly defended slavery. In his private letters, he condemned slavery, but in public, he said it was a necessary evil. He echoed the words of John Calhoun and other Southern leaders. And, but he just said, you know, maybe slavery had to be adjusted somewhat. It shows there wasn't room for criticizing slavery openly in the 1840s and 1850s in the Deep South. So thank you for that question. I'm going to be back in just a moment with the next of your questions. Stick around.
We are back here, and our next question here on our listener question view, viewer special comes from listener Jen. And Jen asks, how does Jefferson versus Hamilton during Washington's administration give insight into our current national debates? That's a good question. It's a, it's a very common one in political science and history, and I have some thoughts on it. First of all, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parse this question a little bit because I would actually say that we don't have much of a current national debate. Uh, if you watch our politics today, and I, I think a lot of you would agree with me, there's not a lot of intellectual, philosophical, political science debate going on. What we have is a lot of noise being created for social media, for cable news, and this is on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, we don't have a lot going on of real debate about the, the meaning of government, the purpose of government, uh, the role that the government should play in our lives. So I'm not sure how much we can actually see of Hamilton and Jefferson in our current 2022 national political debate. But what I do think we can take from Hamilton and Jefferson and their debates during the early days of the Republic is the beginning of the long-standing debate in America about those issues, about the proper role of the government. Uh, Alexander Hamilton promoting the loose interpretation of the Constitution, the idea that there are implied powers for the federal government, that the government's job is not strictly what is listed in the Constitution explicitly, and Jefferson having the opposite view, which today is held by philosophical conservatives, which I'm not sure there are many left of, because I think philosophical conservatism has largely evaporated in the Donald Trump era. But nonetheless, that is where we see it. If we look at, for example, maybe the Supreme Court justices, who are maybe more intellectually honest, at least a few of them, uh, and sticking to traditional conservatism, uh, that's where I think we see the legacy of the Jeffersonian argument. So, uh, you know, this is a debate that's gone on throughout American history. It's been the center of American political debate from the beginning, from Hamilton and Jefferson. I don't think we see it a lot today, but this is at the heart of real political debate throughout our history. And I would say uh, one thing also that we can take from Hamilton and Jefferson is, and especially Jefferson, that there's hypocrisy involved in this. Soon we're going to do an episode where I'm going to debate uh, our list of the top presidents with my fellow history teacher, Frank McGady. And I think something you're going to hear both of us agree on is that Thomas Jefferson historically has been wildly overrated as a president because he really does not live up to what he argues himself when he was in those debates with Alexander Hamilton during the Washington presidency. Thomas Jefferson believed in several things. He believed in one, that this should be an agrarian society. He does stick with that, but the agrarian society which says that cities are corrupting, that cities are evil, that everybody should be a small farmer, that with that comes true freedom, true independence. Thomas Jefferson, to have that accomplished, 
is going to need a lot of land for the United States. That's really what drives things like the Louisiana Purchase. Now, he wasn't really out to buy all of Louisiana, but he's certainly open to buying all of Louisiana when that idea is presented to him by uh, Robert Livingston, who's representing the court, the, the government in, in France. And he, it works because we need a lot of land. Everybody's going to be a farmer. But right away, people are able to point out, look, there's inconsistency in this. Because who's going to be in charge of all that land? It's not part of states. That All that land, according to the Constitution, if it's not part of a state, is going to be governed by the national government. That's putting a tremendous amount of power in the federal government's hands, which seems totally antithetical to what Thomas Jefferson believes in. It also means that the people who are going to be directly controlling that land is probably going to be military governors. We're going to have an expansion of the army because we're going to have to deal with the Native Americans in that territory. We're going to have to have somebody directly overseeing that territory for the government, and that's going to mean the military. So this is not going to work out well for the Thomas Jefferson philosophy that we should be cutting down the size of the federal government, cutting down the size of the military. All of this just doesn't work. Jefferson is also the creator, or at least he signs the bill, that creates the U.S. Military Academy. Again, that's going to expand the size of the military. That's not Tom, very Jeffersonian. You know, say what you want about Alexander Hamilton. He maybe goes crazy a little bit and wants to go to war with France and Spain, and John Adams has his conflicts with him over all of that. But Alexander Hamilton is a lot more consistent in his beliefs, in his philosophy, than Thomas Jefferson is. Um, Jefferson... I don't, I, I don't think very highly of Thomas Jefferson. As a philosopher, sure, you know, great, all men are created equal. That's going to have long-term positive impact. But he's not very Jeffersonian when it comes time for him to be president himself. So, uh, you know, the Hamilton lyric, welcome to the president, we're living in a real nation. Uh, I think that lives, uh, that's a problem for Thomas Jefferson, and he doesn't really live up to it. So thank you for that question. We're going to be right back with the next question, which comes from listener, let's see, who's our next question from? Listener Anthony, uh, who's actually a former co-worker of mine. And we'll be right back with that here on Wigs for Wigs. Stick around. We are back at our next question. The last one I'm going to tackle today comes from listener Anthony. Anthony would like to know more about how the parties have so drastically changed their ideology over the past 150 years. How have we gone from the Republican Party being the liberal party in its origins in the 1850s and 1860s to now being the conservative party and vice versa for the Democrats? Uh, this is a very complicated question. It is one that I receive quite often in U.S. history classes, uh, and I'm going to do my best to highlight some elements of this story that are not very well known. The well-known parts of the story are that this transformation is going to be completed in the 1960s. We've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before, that Richard Nixon especially is going to court Southern racist voters. 
He's going to appeal to them, speaking in economic terms. He's going to appeal to them, say, you know, the Democratic Party has abandoned you. Specifically talking about the Civil Rights Act and the other civil rights legislation signed by Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s, who himself recognized that he had put the nail in the coffin of the old conservative base of the Democratic Party. When he said, there it is, we've just lost the South for a generation, when he signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So that was the finishing nail in the coffin, the straw that broke the camel's back, whichever metaphor you want to use. But that is a well-known part of the story, the 1960s element of the transformation. I want to actually take a step back and look at how that transformation developed over time in this little bit of time I have today. I'm going to highlight just a couple things here that I think add more detail to the story because race is a big part of the issue. The issues of race coming in and out of focus in American politics and the changing relationship between the parties and black voters are a major part of how the parties change from conservative to liberal and vice versa over time. So I'm going to highlight just a couple things here that I think are valuable. And one is in Reconstruction. The changes that happen within the Republican Party in Reconstruction, I think, cannot be overlooked. There is a short period there where the radical wing of the Republican Party is in power. The Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumner, Benjamin Wade wing of the Republican Party are the ones in power, those closely allied with Frederick Douglass and other black leaders during this period, fighting for black civil rights, fighting for black education, fighting for black property ownership and other changes to society to bring about more equanimity, more egalitarianism in American society. But that begins to change after a short period of time, while Reconstruction is still going on. Thaddeus Stevens dies during Reconstruction. I don't think that can be overlooked. He was such a force of nature within the Republican Party in the years after the Civil War, pushing Republicans to support radical legislation. And when he passes away, a lot of that steam comes out of the Republican Party, that pushing for those issues to matter to Republicans, rank and file and elected officials within the Republican Party begins to fade. Charles Sumner, he who had famously been caned, attacked brutally by the pro-slavery politician Preston Brooks in the years before the Civil War and continued as the leader of the radicals, in the Senate after the Civil War, he passes away by the end of Reconstruction. You have a very clear changing of the guard in the leadership of the Republican Party. We've seen how changes in leadership, even in recent years, have drastically altered the Republican Party. And the same thing happens here in Reconstruction. The priorities change because the leaders change. Thaddeus Stevens is gone. Charles Sumner is gone. These other guys are gone. And another major part of it is an economic recession that hits the country in 1873. 
The Panic of 1873 changes the priorities of the people of the country and changes the priorities of the party. At the same time you have this change of leadership, you have new issues coming into focus for the Republican Party. The settlement of the West, the construction of railroads, issues, economic issues that had always been part of the Republican Party that they had taken as part of the American system of the old Whig party that had morphed into the Republican party now come to the forefront and civil rights for blacks and the protection of blacks in the South begin to fade onto the back burner as economic issues take over control of the party and the focus of the party. That is a very major thing that I don't think gets enough attention. The Democratic Party is not changing at this moment in history. They are the party of the South, the party of segregation that's going to put segregation in place at this moment in history. But the party, the priorities of the Republicans are changing, and that's significant. They are beginning to drift from their social equality, political equality, legal equality, economic equality roots and shifting into something else. The next major touchstone, and the other one that I want to talk about today, that doesn't get enough attention, and I think it should. So as you're examining this issue, Anthony and anybody else out there, this is something to look into if you're curious about this topic. Look into the progressive era, the period of Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft, the period when the black community in America is dominated by two figures, W.E.B. Du Bois and the radical black population, and Booker T. Washington and the accommodationist black population, and their relationships with Republican leadership during this time. Now, Theodore Roosevelt, when he becomes president, and this is going to anger our frequent guest, Frank McGady, um, my fellow history teacher here. But Theodore Roosevelt, when he became president, created a lot of hope for black Americans. People who saw him as a progressive, somebody who stood for economic equality and a square deal for all people in American life. People who saw that he praised the, the Buffalo soldiers, the black soldiers who fought alongside the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War, people who saw that he appointed many black office holders and stood by them, even when there were efforts to remove them. There is a famous case of a black female postmaster that Theodore Roosevelt appointed, and when there were protests by the local white population and by white Democratic politicians, he refused to back down and he stood by her appointment. He does the same thing with a man named Crum, who he appointed as the collector of the Port of Charleston, a very powerful position, who was a black man. And when the Charleston, South Carolina Democrats protested, he refused to remove this man, uh, I believe his name was William Crum, from that position. People who are very happy when they see him invite a black man to the White House, Booker T. Washington, as a guest of honor at a White House dinner, something that had never happened before. So there's a lot of hope for Teddy Roosevelt when he first becomes president. 
But again, as I said, the black population's relationship with the Republican Party, with the parties in general, is the critical part of this story, in my opinion. And as time goes on during Roosevelt's presidency, black leaders, especially those in the radical camp led by W.E.B. Du Bois, those who had made up the Niagara movement, begin to sour on Theodore Roosevelt. And the most important thing in this, one is his relationship with Booker T. Washington. The Du Bois types, those who despise Washington and his accommodationist Atlanta compromise approach, saying that black people should not be caring about political equality at this moment in history, that they should be focusing on self-improvement. That is outrageous and abominable to the Du Bois group within the black community. So the fact that it is Washington who has a relationship with Teddy Roosevelt and those around him, that doesn't help his relationship with the Du Bois camp. But even more significant, not just with the radicals like Du Bois, but even with some of those among the Booker T. Washington camp of the black community, the biggest issue that drives black people away from the Republican Party during the progressive era is something called the Brownsville Incident. This involves black soldiers of the U.S. Army, the 25th Infantry Regiment, which was a black infantry regiment in the U.S. Army. Now, as I said, Teddy Roosevelt had praised black soldiers in his recollections, in his speeches about the Spanish-American War, which he had fought in, where he had seen black soldiers in action fighting alongside the Rough Riders at Las Guasimas and at San Juan Hill. He had praised the black soldiers. But here, in 1906, in Texas, in Brownsville, this black infantry regiment, the 25th Infantry, gets accused of instigating a race riot and of attacking white women. There is violent clashes in the streets between these black soldiers and some of the white population of Brownsville. And in the end, Teddy Roosevelt decides to discharge dishonorably, kicking them out of the army, the entire contingent of the 25th Infantry, all of these black soldiers, hundreds of them, are removed from the army dishonorably by President Roosevelt in response to this act. And very shortly after that, in December, President Roosevelt gave his annual address to Congress, what today we call the State of the Union. And in that speech, Roosevelt blamed black people as a whole for the crime of rape, falsely asserting that most lynchings in the country, and this is a period of the peak of lynchings, when the NAACP, founded by W.E.B. Du Bois, frequently held a banner out front of their office in New York City saying a man was lynched yesterday far too frequently. And they only flew it when that actually happened. But it was almost always flying in front of their, their offices. 
at this moment in history where most lynchings were quote-unquote justified as punishments for black men committing aggression against white women, Teddy Roosevelt, in his annual message, said that black men were responsible for rape in large numbers, that lynchings were caused by assaults by black men on white women, and saying that black men should only receive industrial education, that they were not suited to higher education in America. So he justified lynchings and he justified educational discrimination against black people in the United States within a short period of time after kicking dozens of black soldiers out of the US Army for allegedly committing crimes against the white population, including women. When this happens, Du Bois and his allies in the black press around the country begin urging their supporters to stop supporting the Republican Party. How are they any better? Look at what they're saying. Now, at this moment, Du Bois especially began flirting with the Socialist Party, which was growing in America, seeing them as at least fighting for economic equality. He said they were the only party who treated black men as men, as people. And when William Howard Taft becomes the next president, Roosevelt's handpicked successor as a Republican, more and more black leaders start to abandon the Republican Party. They see Taft removing black office holders. There are less black office holders in the federal government at the end of Taft's presidency than, than at the beginning of it. They also see him and Roosevelt and other Republicans as responsible for imperialist policies that were racist towards Pacific Islanders, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and other people of color. And they say, these people are, these Republicans are just as racist as the Democrats, essentially. And they start to see more progressivism within the Democratic Party. So they say, maybe we should start supporting the Democrats for economic purposes. If the Republicans are abandoning us, why should we stand by the Republicans? Let's maybe give the Democrats a chance, at least some Democrats. Now, that is going to be soured by Woodrow Wilson. When Wilson is president, a white segregationist Southerner, he's going to completely bar black office holders from the federal government, resegregate the federal government. He is going to praise the movie Birth of a Nation, have a special screening of it at the White House where the Klan is going to reemerge because of this movie. And Du Bois and other black leaders are going to be horrified by this and essentially say, you know, we made a mistake. We never should have supported these guys. But they had tried something. They had tried something. And now with Wilson in office, they see, well, there's really no winning. And they kind of feel they're without a party. 
like I said, they, they drift towards the socialists. They drift a little bit towards the short-lived progressive party. Not when Roosevelt was their nominee in 1912, when they were called the Bull Moose Party, but in the elections after that. They support people like Robert LaFollette. Progressives who at least, again, talk about economic equality in America. And a lot of those black leaders, a lot of those black voters are really never going to come back to the Republican Party when they start to see Democratic progressives like Franklin Roosevelt winning offices and putting policies in place. There were certainly racist elements to the New Deal policies. Some of them were explicitly for whites. Some of the work programs, some of the economic relief programs were explicitly and solely for whites, but others were not. And I'm reminded, you all know I have an affinity for Gettysburg, a connection to Gettysburg, that at Gettysburg, at Gettysburg National Park, when a civilian conservation corps camp was created there, a CCC camp that put many people back to work all over the country, the CCC, Gettysburg CCC camp had all black workers and was, I believe, the only one with a black commandant. This was an experiment. It was Franklin Roosevelt, the directors of the CCC, the directors of the Department of Labor, seeing what are black people capable of. This is an olive branch a bit by the Democratic progressives to black America. And these black Americans who had felt abandoned already by the Republicans going back decades by this point, who are never going to return to the Republicans in full force, start to drift towards the Democrats even more. If they're going to at least get us a job, if they're going to at least get us a chance to have some economic opportunity, if these Northern Democrats are more and more going to be progressives and the Republicans are not, they're who we're going to hitch our wagon to going forward. And that's really the roots of what we're going to see develop and lead all the way up to the 1960s. We're going to see Democrats like Harry Truman be the ones who desegregate the military. Look, Harry Truman, Southern Democrat from Missouri, desegregates the military. He faces a Southern segregationist revolt from within his party. 1948, he doesn't just face Dewey, who people think he's going to lose to. Part of why they think he's going to lose is they think he's going to lose the South because he desegregated the military. We get the Dixiecrat Party that election, who nominated Strom Thurmond for president. To the amazement of everybody, Harry Truman still mostly wins the South. But he also gets support from black people in the North that helps him carry many of these northern states and beat Thomas Dewey and win this close election. He's a Democrat. We're going to see then in the 60s, Kennedy, John and Bobby taking important action to fight for civil rights, standing up to George Wallace and other Southern governors. And then we're going to see it all culminate with Lyndon Johnson signing the Civil Rights Act, which was pushed for primarily 
by Northern Democratic progressives, people like Hubert Humphrey and others. So this is a long story, but it doesn't just magically happen in the 1960s that the Kennedys and Lyndon Johnson come around and suddenly black people are supporting the Democratic Party and not the Republican Party. This had been in the works for a long time, and you can't ignore incidents like the Brownsville incident and the falling out that black America has with Theodore Roosevelt and other Republican leaders. You can't ignore the shift that began with the dying out of the radicals and the loss of influence of the radicals in the 1870s during Reconstruction. You can't ignore these things. This is the beginning of the shift, and it is going to happen gradually over time, and it is all going to culminate in the 1960s when the shift is completed. It is not, as Lyndon Johnson said, we lost the South. It is we lost the white South. But by that time, the Democrats also are going to solidly have the support of black America. And that is the most important thing in the change of the parties. It is what is their relationship with race. And we see that develop happen over a very long period of time. So I am certainly open to discuss this more. I'm going to put out, again, you, can, you are always free to send in your questions to wigs for wigs at gmail.com. That is W-I-G-S-F-O-R-W-H-I-G-S at gmail.com. I hope I have answered your question satisfactorily, Anthony, and everybody else whose questions I answered here. I will have more listener questions in the future. Please send them in at any time, and I will add them to episodes, either standalone episodes or as part of broader episodes. But I want to hear from you. So thank you all for who have sent your questions. Thank you all who are listening. And tune in again next week for another episode of Wigs for Wigs. Take care, everybody. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the, the concept for this podcast, and then... I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be. And I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig Party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that uh, 
is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to. And I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back. And I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig Party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook. And today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the, the concept for this podcast, and then I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be, and I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Wig party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that uh, is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less, congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to, and I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back and I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the, the concept for this podcast, and then... I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be. And I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, 
we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig Party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that uh, is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to. And I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back. And I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig Party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around, and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the the concept for this podcast, and then I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today, we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be, and I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that... Uh, it's a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less, congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to, and I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back and I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the, the concept for this podcast, and then... I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today, we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be. 
and I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that uh, is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less uh, less congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to. And I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back. And I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig Party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the, the concept for this podcast, and then I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today, we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be, and I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that uh, is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to. And I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back and I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig Party the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around, and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the the concept for this podcast, and then 
I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today, we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be. And I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that... uh, is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a it's a paper I've been thinking back to. And I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back. And I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig Party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Wigs for Wigs. I'm your host, Joe Cook, and today we are going to do something a little bit different on the podcast, which we'll see more of in future episodes, where I'm going to discuss a topic from history in detail, uh, just on my own. I don't have any of my guests with me today, but this was originally the, the, the concept for this podcast, and then... I wanted to keep it interesting. We, we've changed format over time. I bring in the guests. We discuss topics. It's been a lot of current events. Today, we're going to get back to the original roots of what this podcast was originally going to be. And I'm going to start talking about some of the topics of interest to me in American history to try to give a fuller understanding of American history to all of you out there in the audience. So what we're going to do today, because this podcast is Wigs for Wigs, we're going to pay tribute to the old Whig party, uh, which existed in the early to mid-19th century. And today I'm going to present a paper to all of you, actually, that uh, is a successful paper I wrote. I, I presented it at a conference many years ago. It was my first, it was my second ever conference paper presentation. And it's a paper titled, Henry Clay is Dead, The End of Compromise in Antebellum America. Now, the subject of politics becoming more polarized, less, uh, less congenial to the idea of compromise is one I think we can understand here in 2022. So it's a, it's a paper I've been thinking back to. And I'm going to take a little break here, but then I'll be back. And I'm going to tell you all about the death of the founder and perpetual leader of the Whig Party, the seemingly omnipresent in early U.S. history, Henry Clay. So stick around, and we'll be talking about Henry Clay when I return. So welcome back, everybody, here on Wigs for Wigs. Today, as I said, I'm going to be talking about Henry Clay, who founded the Whig Party in opposition to Andrew Jackson, 
The Whig Party took their name from the Whigs in English politics, who were opposed to the uh, all pow- the increasing power of the king. The Whigs stood up more for the rights of the common man, of the parliament. And so the Whig Party in America saw Andrew Jackson as a tyrannical, despotic figure. And therefore, they took that name of the Whig Party, which had morphed out of what had been known as the National Republican Party. And they were led for many, many years, for almost their entire existence as a party, by Henry Clay of Kentucky. And when he passed away in the early 1850s, that's when we start to see the conflict escalate that's going to build to the Civil War. And so this is a paper I wrote uh, almost a decade ago now at this point, when I was in graduate school, titled The Death of Henry Clay. So strap in and get ready to hear all about the leader of the Whigs here on Whigs for Whigs. As a member of the Congress's great triumvirate with John Calhoun and Daniel Webster, these are names that you might remember from U.S. History 1 when you took it, wherever that may have been, those of you out there listening. Henry Clay established a reputation as the great compromiser for his repeated success at mediating between competing interests and maintaining national union throughout his five troublesome decades of public service. Abraham Lincoln called him the beau ideal of a statesman, and this, statement, this sentiment was shared by many throughout the United States, and also abroad in Europe and in Latin America, where he was a fervent supporter of independence movements. His final great act on the national stage was the Compromise of 1850, aimed at sorting out the sectional troubles that resulted from the Mexican War, a war that Clay had personally vigorously opposed. He worked hard to reach that compromise solution, but being aged and in ill health, he was forced to relinquish some of his leadership responsibilities to a younger generation of politicians, namely Stephen Douglas. Clay died in 1852, and the following several years only accelerated the nation's course towards disunion and civil war. In historical retrospection, this could spark a curiosity concerning the effect that an immortal Henry Clay may have had on the great national emergency. Such speculation is counterproductive, but it is useful to examine several issues related to his exit from the national stage. The conditions of the nation at the time of Clay's death, the level of success he was finding in his final years in terms of orchestrating compromises, the nation's reaction to his death, and the ways in which he was remembered at the time of the, of the secession crisis of 1860. Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson cast their tremendous shadows over half a century of American politics. They were bitter political rivals, the fathers of rival parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, respectively, and their personal disdain for each other was palpable. It is telling that Andrew Jackson's final words were allegedly that he wished he had shot Henry Clay and hanged John Calhoun. This great republic has been convulsed to its center by the great divisions which have sprung from their respective opinions, policy, and personal destinies, Congressman Charles Faulkner proclaimed. 
Yet these two titans of the antebellum era were equally committed to the preservation of the American Union. The movement towards disunion of the nation was led by one of the other members of the Great Triumvirate, John C. Calhoun, an erstwhile ally of Clay in the Congress, who had heated clashes with the fiery President Jackson. The nullification crisis of 1832 prompted the bizarre political spectacle of Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay actually working together, passing the force bill through Congress, and a new tariff to alleviate the troubles and save the country. In this age of political titans, the preservation of the republic trumped party politics, even among bitter political rivals like Clay and Jackson. An illustrative event of this importance of national preservation occurred during the presidency of Jackson's protege, James K. Polk, who defeated Clay in the perennial presidential loser's bitterest electoral failure, which, by the way, Henry Clay lost in 1844 to James K. Polk. There is rampant evidence, like real evidence, of voter fraud in the 1844 election. There really were counties in Louisiana, for example, parishes, I guess I should say, where more people voted than were registered to vote in those counties. So, you know, recent people charging voter fraud in, let's say, 2020, or even 2016, when a certain person won and still claimed there was voter fraud against him. You know, bullshit. But this was real voter fraud that led to Polk winning the 1844 election. But anyway, on February 4th, 1848, as Polk's presidency was coming towards its end, Clay paid a visit to Polk in the president in the executive mansion. The president had an anticipated a courtesy call from the man who had raged against just about every political initiative of the Jackson Polk party for two decades. They talked of each other's of each other's families, and they joked of supporting each other if either ran for president again. The touching episode, according to historian David Heidler, the touching episode reflected an underlying reality of American politics. However intensely the battles are fought, and however copiously the animosities flow, all parties are expected to accept the political outcomes in good grace and refrain from the kinds of personal enmities that could undermine the delicate balance of democracy. You know, just reading this again, I'm reading this paper for the first time in years, I'm reminded of President Obama's eulogy for my hero, John McCain, where he talked about McCain coming to the White House. And even though they disagreed bitterly and those disagreements didn't go away, they could talk with, with each other. They could laugh with each other. They could learn from each other. And they talked about each other's families and each other's dreams and how much each of them loved the country. That's kind of what I'm, I picture here as I, as I hear David Heiler, the historian, talk about this meeting between Polk and Clay. For two men who had worked for the improvement and the prestige of the American nation, divergent as their visions for the country may have been, the era they knew was clearly coming to an end. Mr. Polk's war, which Clay had vigorously opposed, was destined to exacerbate the sectional debates within the country and bring a new generation of leaders to the forefront. As historian Robert Merry wrote, these were the two surviving lions of the old politics, and of course, senior lions 
like to mingle with other senior lions. This was a slightly bizarre statement by Mary, because both Calhoun and triumvirate member Daniel Webster were still alive in 1848. However, Mary was correct in writing, quote, The old era of politics was fading now, and these gentlemen of the old era were fading with it. Looking back on all the battles and battle scars of their political rivalry, they shared a commonality of nostalgia that can never be appreciated by the younger lions of either party vying for dominance of the nation, end quote. This next generation of lions, men like William Seward, Stephen Douglas, William Yancey, inherited the partisan animosity of the political predecessors, but without that national spirit and willingness to compromise. Seward, the New York leader of Free Soil Whigs, spoke of an irrepressible conflict between North and South, and, quote, admitted to plotting that slavery zealotry might goad Southern Democrats, and thus the slave power-dominated Democratic Party, to demand outrageously much for slavery. Then Whigs could whip up greater anti-Southern, and therefore anti-Democratic Party, hatreds in the North. Yancey became a leader of the Fire Eaters, pushing for secession if the slave power was ever threatened. Douglas became a doe-face, a northerner who always tried to give in to the South as much as possible in order to find that political middle ground, but ultimately only muddling himself in ambiguity and confusion. David M. Potter could not resist the urge to compare this cast of characters to a literary or stage drama. Webster was, quote, the kind of senator that Richard Wagner might have created at the height of his powers, end quote, and was Jove-like. Calhoun was, quote, the most majestic champion of error since Milton Satan in Paradise Lost. And Clay, the old conciliator, who had already saved the Union twice and now came out of retirement to save it once again before he died. These three were relics of a golden age who still towered like giants above the creatures of a later time. Among those of the later time, there was an able supporting cast. There were Seward, John Bell, Stephen Douglas, Thomas Hart Benton, Lewis Cass, Jefferson Davis, Sam and Chase, who would have been stars on any other stage, according to Potter. The failure of Clay and Webster to sew up the incomplete national fabric begun by the founders, left the issue in this next generation's hands, with the disciples of Calhoun's error and their radical adversaries in the North setting the drama on a course toward national tragedy. Clay personally mistrusted many of these younger men, dubious about their commitment to the integrity of the nation. Some of this was personal. Since 1839, he had felt betrayed by William Henry Seward, and by fellow New York Whig leader Thurlow Weed, who Clay believed had abandoned the principles of the party and been personally deceptive after Seward supported Winfield Scott and William Henry Harrison for presidential nominations over Henry Clay. This came after Clay had received assurances from a friend in New York that Governor Seward and Thurlow Weed are not only friendly to your election, 
but warmly and zealously so. But they deem it inexpedient to make public declarations of their preference. End quote. Despite himself being a master of backroom politics, as a legislative leader must be, Clay had a deep mistrust for men like Seward, who professed support privately, but publicly did not follow through on the promise. He also feared the effect that the abolitionist movement growing in the northern states. Quote, show that the agitation of the slavery questions in the free states will first destroy all harmony and finally lead to disunion. Clay advised Calvin Colton in 1843, quote, that the consequences of disunion, perpetual war, the extinction of the African race, ultimate military despotism, that's what Clay foresaw from growing partisanship and animosity in politics. Clay worried about the abolitionist belief expressed by Seward in Congress that there is a higher law than the Constitution Considering the influence that Seward wielded in the 1850s following Clay's death, the power he was later perceived as possessing within the Lincoln administration, and his divide from the methods of Henry Clay, an examination of Seward's speech is very valuable, as it echoed throughout the 1850s in the paranoid minds of secessionist Southerners. Seward, opposing Clay's final grand act on the national stage, the Compromise of 1850, proclaimed, quote, I am opposed to any such compromise in any and all forms, because while admitting the purity and the patriotism of all from whom it is my misfortune to differ, I think all legislative compromises radically wrong and essentially vicious, end quote. To Clay, this statement must have, must have stung as strongly as Seward's perceived portrayal in the Whig Convention of 1839, the time of loyal opposition like that Clay embodied during the administration of President Polk was clearly fading into the past. The sections were dividing along a deepening chasm. Webster for, spoke four days before Mr. Seward, delivering his most famous speech, in which he spoke not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a Northern man, but as an American and a member of the Senate of the United States. Unfortunately, the rest of that speech is largely forgotten by historical memory. Webster, echoing Clay, promoted the power and compromising ability of Congress, saying, quote, It is fortunate that there is a Senate of the United States, a body not yet moved from its propriety, and a body to which the country looks with confidence for wise, moderate, patriotic, and healing counsels in the midst of strong agitations. He lamented, quote, the imprisoned winds are let loose. The east, the west, the north, and the stormy south all combine to throw the whole ocean into commotion. Webster attributed more of the storm to the south than to abolitionist agitators in the north, but like his fellow aging titan Henry Clay, he feared for the future of the Union due to the growing antagonism toward compromise. In regard to the stormy South and its leaders who threatened secession, Clay was deeply troubled. Like Webster, Clay feared that the younger generation of legislators was losing sight of the national responsibilities of the Congress. 
Quote, I am not surprised at your mortification by having imputed to you the epithet of old politician, he wrote to fellow Whig Nathan Sargent. If I had yielded to similar feelings, I should a thousand times have abandoned politics forever. But we must recollect that it is our country that we have to serve and that it is our duty to serve it, although we are treated unjustly, end quote. This liberal sense of American nationalism was being crushed by the sectional and ethnic concerns of the 1850s, though. Again, are you hearing echoes here in 2022? History doesn't repeat itself, but it very often rhymes, as Mark Twain allegedly said. Such fiery elements were already growing in numbers, power, and influence by the time Webster and Clay exited the national stage. To Clay and his Kentucky ally, John Crittenden, both sides were guilty of driving the nation towards disunion and war. Clay and Crittenden were quick to deplore abolitionists and Republican free soilers alike as dangerous to domestic peace and equally critical of Southern fire eaters. As far as the two aged Kentucky statesmen were concerned, the antagonistic efforts of the two sides ignored the fact that California and the other territories would likely not be settled for decades. And thus we're making a present evil out of an apprehension of a future that may never occur. Both proponents of gradual compensated emancipation, these two border state leaders deplored the enthusiasm of the younger generation. Their own vision, which inspired the young Whig Abraham Lincoln, had the three main features, gradual, compensation, and the vote of the people, all of which abolitionists abhorred. Lincoln, the clay disciple, referred to abolitionists as fiends and stated, I can express all my views on the slavery question by quotations from Henry Clay. To those who ultimately formed the conservative wing of the Republican Party after the collapse of the Whigs, Henry Clay continued to be an idol in his unionist and gradualist ideologies. Accordingly, Lincoln once proclaimed, quote, if there be any man in the Republican Party who is impatient of the constitutional obligations bound around it, he is misplaced and ought to find a, some, a place somewhere else, end quote. Extremes were the enemy to Clay and his ilk because they closed the minds of men to the co value of compromise for the sake of the nation, Clay's Whig party was indeed doomed to division and collapse. Many Whig papers and eulogizers, though, ignored the troubled state and uncertain future of the party and produced flowery tributes to their fallen leader, whose policies were soon to be discarded as the party shifted and ultimately evaporated. The New York Times published a number of these tributes, ranging from the report of an English judgment of Henry Clay, which proclaimed him, quote, among the first class of American worthies to be regretted by the world, end quote, to the various eulogies coming from all over the country, including by Clay's former vice presidential nominee, Theodore Fellinghuysen of New Jersey. According to the Times, quote, the heavy blow long suspended has fallen at last. Henry Clay, the renowned and the peerless, has gone to his rest, end quote. In its full-page tribute, the Times reported that Clay was simply too great to be president. 
Clay's death was mourned by all throughout the nation, with the exception of some radical abolitionists and extreme Southern fire eaters. Quote, from every quarter of the Union, the Times said, from all parties and from all classes. One of those intriguing pieces of coverage the Times provided concerning Clay's death was in printing of Seward's remarks on the Senate floor on the matter. Seward obliquely criticized Clay in the undertones of his florid praise, mentioning that, quote, history will confirm that conservatism was the interest of the nation and the responsibility of its rulers during the time in which he flourished, end quote. Of course, by stressing that this was the importance and the, the interest of the country at the time that Clay was flourishing suggests that those were things of the past. Seward proceeded to encourage others who knew Clay longer to speak in his place. Finally, he declined to discuss Clay's legislative achievements at any length, but instead mentioned his belief that, quote, his personal qualities may be discussed without apprehension, end quote. William Henry Seward was leading the Whig Party in a new direction, and he was not going to use his time on the floor praising the old methods and the old giant. Some Whigs would not let the legacy of Henry Clay die, even while the party changed and collapsed. Freelingheisen elaborated on all the areas of life in which Henry Clay was a great man, and then turned to his reputation... It has been sometimes said that Mr. Clay was not popular. This must depend upon the interpretation of that term. There is a popularity which, like the gourd, comes up in the night and departs in a night, and no man can tell us what has become of it. Mr. C had none of this. And there is a popularity that grows on the more healthfully because of trials, this popularity has another element. It lives beyond the grave. The sepulchre cannot impair the securities of a good name. End quote. According to the New Jersey Whig, Clay would be dearly missed by the nation in any time of trouble. Out West, an idolizer of Clay delivered Illinois' official eulogy for the fallen Whig leader. Unabashedly, Abraham Lincoln extolled Clay's personal traits and his professional accomplishments and efforts. Quote, Alas, who can realize that Henry Clay is dead? Who can realize that never again that majestic form shall rise in the council chambers of his country to beat back the storms of anarchy which may threaten? Then reflecting on Clay's sense of liberal nationalism, Lincoln continued, Henry Clay belonged to his country, to the world, Mere party cannot claim men like him. His career has been national. His fame has filled the earth. His memory will endure to the last syllable of recorded time. Alas, Henry Clay is dead. End quote. When the great national chasm came, with South Carolina seceding from the Union in December of 1860, it was natural to turn thoughts back to the compromising efforts of Henry Clay. His former Kentucky colleague, John Crittenden, failed in the role of compromiser during the secession crisis. And by the way, nobody's family represented the divisions of the Civil War better than Crittenden's, 
who had one son serve as a Union general, his son Thomas Crittenden, who played an important part in the Western armies of the United States at Chickamauga and elsewhere, and his other son, George Crittenden, who became a Confederate general. But anyway, getting back to it. Lincoln was president, still keeping the words and example of Henry Clay in his mind. William Seward, who would oppose Clay's methods, ironically stood as Lincoln's right-hand man. The Central Campaign Club of New York held a reception that drew attention due to the fact that, quote, it is remarkable that there should have been but two receptions until tonight in this room. One was to Daniel Webster, the other to Henry Clay, and a third is now to Abraham Lincoln. Meanwhile, Seward toured the North, where some compared it with the receptions that Whigs used to give to Henry Clay in his tours through the Northern States. Quote, there is one difference to be remembered in considering the significance of these ovations to the great statesman, the New York Times said. There was no striking contrast in Mr. Clay's case. It was never unpopular to honor him. Mr. Seward personally would have likely disagreed with this New York Times report, which continued, it was never unpopular and almost a disgrace to be a Clay man, but how recent the time when to be a Seward man required the highest moral courage. For decades, one of these two great statesmen guided the Whig Party toward compromise as a loose national organization. But for the past decade leading up to this point, the other had bolted the Whigs for a new party after helping to damage the national nature of the Whig Party. Most importantly in this moment of crisis, the new Republican leaders, Lincoln and Seward, former Whigs with drastically different opinions of Henry Clay, could take inspiration for the coming struggle from Clay's unionism. Seward's early commitment to forcing the seceded states back into the Union was lukewarm at best, but Lincoln was resolute. Writing of secession back in the 1840s, Henry Clay had proclaimed, For my own part, I utterly deny the existence of any such right of a state, and I think an attempt to exercise it ought to be resisted to the last extremity, for it is in fact a question of union or no union. The New York Times proclaimed that Clay would personally be, quote, for lopping off the hydra head of secession by the strong arm of the offended law. His stance was recounted as follows. There could be but one possible answer. The power, the authority, and the dignity of the government ought to be maintained and resistance put down at every hazard. My belief is that if it should be applied to South Carolina in the event of her secession, she should be speedily reduced to obedience and that the Union, instead of being weakened, would acquire additional strength. This was Lincoln's position in the secession crisis of 1860, that swift and stern action against the seceded states would restore the Union and that all efforts should be exhausted for that cause. Taking inspiration from Clay's speeches concerning the Compromise of 1850, Lincoln's inaugural address alluded to the national mystic chords of memory and the better angels of our nature. Critically important in this strategy of preserving the integrity of the nation, 
The New York Times said, Kentucky, which holds the ashes of Henry Clay, stands by the Union. Henry Clay may have been dead, but as Freelingheisen and Lincoln had predicted in their eulogies, his guidance was missed and still sought, and his shadow was felt in the great national disaster. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at Henry Clay, the founder of the Whig Party, and this story of the collapse of the Whig Party and its legacy leading into the days of Abraham Lincoln. I am reachable, as always, here at the podcast at Wigs for Wigs, that is W I G S F O R W H I G S at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts uh, about Henry Clay about how much how sick you were of learning about him in U.S. History 1, because I'm sure you were. There's a joke among U.S. History teachers that, you know, uh, in life, Jesus is always the answer, but in U.S. History 1, it's always Henry Clay. So uh, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed. Reach out and tell me your, your questions, your comments, and I'll see you again soon for another episode of Wigs for Wigs. Take care, everybody. Clay's Whig party was indeed doomed to division and collapse. Many Whig papers and eulogizers, though, ignored the troubled state and uncertain future of the party and produced flowery tributes to their fallen leader, whose policies were soon to be discarded as the party shifted and ultimately evaporated. The New York Times published a number of these tributes, ranging from the report of an English judgment of Henry Clay which proclaimed him, quote, among the first class of American worthies to be regretted by the world, end quote, to the various eulogies coming from all over the country, including by Clay's former vice presidential nominee, Theodore Frelinghuysen of New Jersey. According to the Times, quote, the heavy blow long suspended has fallen at last. Henry Clay, the renowned and the peerless, has gone to his rest, end quote. In its full-page tribute, the Times reported that Clay was simply too great to be president. Clay's death was mourned by all throughout the nation, with the exception of some radical abolitionists and extreme Southern fire-eaters. Quote, from every quarter of the Union, the Times said, from all parties and from all classes. One of the most intriguing pieces of coverage the Times provided concerning Clay's death was in printing of Seward's remarks on the Senate floor on the matter. Seward obliquely criticized Clay in the undertones of his floored praise, mentioning that, quote, history will confirm that conservatism was the interest of the nation and the responsibility of its rulers during the time in which he flourished, end quote. Of course, by stressing that this was the importance and the the interests of the country at the time that Clay was flourishing suggests that those were things of the past. Seward proceeded to encourage others who knew Clay longer to speak in his place. Finally, he declined to discuss Clay's legislative achievements at any length, but instead mentioned his belief that, quote, his personal qualities may be discussed without apprehension, end quote. William Henry Seward was leading the Whig Party in a new direction, and he was not going to use his time on the floor 
praising the old methods and the old giant. Some Whigs would not let the legacy of Henry Clay die, even while the party changed and collapsed. Frelinghuysen elaborated on all the areas of life in which Henry Clay was a great man, and then turned to his reputation. It has been sometimes said that Mr. Clay was not popular. This must depend upon the interpretation of that term. There is a popularity which, like the gourd, comes up in the night and departs in the night, and no man can tell us what has become of it. Mr. C had none of this. And there is a popularity that grows on the more healthfully because of trials. This popularity has another element. It lives beyond the grave. The sepulchre cannot impair the securities of a good name. End quote. According to the New Jersey Whig, Clay would be dearly missed by the nation in any time of trouble. Out West, an idolizer of Clay delivered Illinois' official eulogy for the fallen Whig leader. Unabashedly, Abraham Lincoln extolled Clay's personal traits and his professional accomplishments and efforts. Quote, Alas, who can realize that Henry Clay is dead? Who can realize that never again that majestic form shall rise in the council chambers of his country to beat back the storms of anarchy which may threaten? Then reflecting on Clay's sense of liberal nationalism, Lincoln continued, Henry Clay belonged to his country, to the world. Mere party cannot claim men like him. His career has been national. His fame has filled the earth. His memory will endure to the last syllable of recorded time. Alas, Henry Clay is dead. End quote. When the great national chasm came, with South Carolina seceding from the Union in December of 1860, it was natural to turn thoughts back to the compromising efforts of Henry Clay. His former Kentucky colleague, John Crittenden, failed in the role of compromiser during the secession crisis. And by the way, nobody's family represented the divisions of the Civil War better than Crittenden's, who had one son serve as a Union general, his son Thomas Crittenden, who played an important part in the Western armies of the United States at Chickamauga and elsewhere, and his other son, George Crittenden, who became a Confederate general. But anyway, getting back to it, Lincoln was president, still keeping the words and example of Henry Clay in his mind. William Seward, who would oppose Clay's methods, ironically stood as Lincoln's right-hand man. The Central Campaign Club of New York held a reception that drew attention due to the fact that, quote, it is remarkable that there should have been but two receptions until tonight in this room. One was to Daniel Webster, the other to Henry Clay, and a third is now to Abraham Lincoln. Meanwhile, Seward toured the North, where some compared it with the receptions that Whigs used to give to Henry Clay in his tours through the Northern States. Quote, there is one difference to be remembered in considering the significance of these ovations to the great statesman, the New York Times said. There was no striking contrast in Mr. Clay's case. It was never unpopular to honor him. Mr. Seward personally would have likely disagreed with this New York Times report, which continued, It was never unpopular and almost a disgrace to be a Clay man. 
But how recent the time when to be a seward man required the highest moral courage? For decades, one of these two great statesmen guided the Whig Party toward compromise as a loose national organization. But for the past decade leading up to this point, the other had bolted the Whigs for a new party after helping to damage the national nature of the Whig Party. Most importantly in this moment of crisis, the new Republican leaders, Lincoln and Seward, former Whigs with drastically different opinions of Henry Clay, could take inspiration for the coming struggle from Clay's unionism. Seward's early commitment to forcing the seceded states back into the union was lukewarm at best, but Lincoln was resolute. Writing of secession back in the 1840s, Henry Clay had proclaimed, For my own part, I utterly deny the existence of any such right of a state, and I think an attempt to exercise it ought to be resisted to the last extremity, for it is in fact a question of union or no union. The New York Times proclaimed that Clay would personally be, quote, for lopping off the hydra head of secession by the strong arm of the offended law. His stance was recounted as follows. There could be but one possible answer. The power, the authority, and the dignity of the government ought to be maintained and resistance put down at every hazard. My belief is that if it should be applied to South Carolina in the event of her secession, she should be speedily reduced to obedience and that the Union, instead of being weakened, would acquire additional strength. This was Lincoln's position in the secession crisis of 1860, that swift and stern action against the seceded states would restore the Union and that all efforts should be exhausted for that cause. Taking inspiration from Clay's speeches concerning the Compromise of 1850, Lincoln's inaugural address alluded to the national mystic chords of memory and the better angels of our nature. Critically important in this strategy of preserving the integrity of the nation, the New York Times said, Kentucky, which holds the ashes of Henry Clay, stands by the Union. Henry Clay may have been dead, but as Freelingheisen and Lincoln had predicted in their eulogies, his guidance was missed and still sought, and his shadow was felt in the great national disaster. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at Henry Clay, the founder of the Whig Party, and this story of the collapse of the Whig Party and its legacy leading into the days of Abraham Lincoln. I am reachable, as always, here at the podcast at Wigs for Wigs, that is W I G S F O R W H I G S, at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts uh, about Henry Clay about how, much, how sick you were of learning about him in U.S. History 1, because I'm sure you were. There's a joke among U.S. History teachers that, you know, uh, in life, Jesus is always the answer, but in U.S. History 1, it's always Henry Clay. So uh, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed. Reach out and tell me your, your questions, your comments, and I'll see you again soon for another episode of Wigs for Wigs. Take care, everybody. 
Clay's Whig party was indeed doomed to division and collapse. Many Whig papers and eulogizers, though, ignored the troubled state and uncertain future of the party and produced flowery tributes to their fallen leader, whose policies were soon to be discarded as the party shifted and ultimately evaporated. The New York Times published a number of these tributes, ranging from the report of an English judgment of Henry Clay, which proclaimed him, quote, among the first class of American worthies to be regretted by the world, end quote, to the various eulogies coming from all over the country, including by Clay's former vice presidential nominee, Theodore Fellinghuysen of New Jersey. According to the Times, quote, the heavy blow long suspended has fallen at last. Henry Clay, the renowned and the peerless, has gone to his rest, end quote. In its full-page tribute, the Times reported that Clay was simply too great to be president. Clay's death was mourned by all throughout the nation, with the exception of some radical abolitionists and extreme Southern fire eaters. Quote, from every quarter of the Union, the Times said, from all parties and from all classes. One of the most intriguing pieces of coverage the Times provided concerning Clay's death was in printing of Seward's remarks on the Senate floor on the matter. Seward obliquely criticized Clay in the undertones of his floored praise, mentioning that, quote, history will confirm that conservatism was the interest of the nation and the responsibility of its rulers during the time in which he flourished, end quote. Of course, by stressing that this was the importance and the, the interest of the country at the time that Clay was flourishing suggests that those were things of the past. Seward proceeded to encourage others who knew Clay longer to speak in his place. Finally, he declined to discuss Clay's legislative achievements at any length, but instead mentioned his belief that, quote, his personal qualities may be discussed without apprehension, end quote. William Henry Seward was leading the Whig Party in a new direction, and he was not going to use his time on the floor praising the old methods and the old giant. Some Whigs would not let the legacy of Henry Clay die, even while the party changed and collapsed. Freelinghuysen elaborated on all the areas of life in which Henry Clay was a great man, and then turned to his reputation... It has been sometimes said that Mr. Clay was not popular. This must depend upon the interpretation of that term. There is a popularity which, like the gourd, comes up in the night and departs in a night, and no man can tell us what has become of it. Mr. C had none of this. And there is a popularity that grows on the more healthfully because of trials, this popularity has another element. It lives beyond the grave. The sepulcher cannot impair the securities of a good name. End quote. According to the New Jersey Whig, Clay would be dearly missed by the nation in any time of trouble. Out West, an idolizer of Clay delivered Illinois' official eulogy for the fallen Whig leader. Unabashedly, Abraham Lincoln extolled Clay's personal traits and his professional accomplishments and efforts. Quote, Alas, 
Who can realize that Henry Clay is dead? Who can realize that never again that majestic form shall rise in the council chambers of his country to beat back the storms of anarchy which may threaten? Then reflecting on Clay's sense of liberal nationalism, Lincoln continued, Henry Clay belonged to his country, to the world. Mere party cannot claim men like him. His career has been national. His fame has filled the earth. His memory will endure to the last syllable of recorded time. Alas, Henry Clay is dead. End quote. When the great national chasm came, with South Carolina seceding from the Union in December of 1860, it was natural to turn thoughts back to the compromising efforts of Henry Clay. His former Kentucky colleague, John Crittenden, failed in the role of compromiser during the secession crisis. And by the way, nobody's family represented the divisions of the Civil War better than Crittenden's, who had one son serve as a Union general, his son Thomas Crittenden, who played an important part in the Western armies of the United States at Chickamauga and elsewhere, and his other son, George Crittenden, who became a Confederate general. But anyway, getting back to it, Lincoln was president, still keeping the words and example of Henry Clay in his mind. William Seward, who would oppose Clay's methods, ironically stood as Lincoln's right-hand man. The Central Campaign Club of New York held a reception that drew attention due to the fact that, quote, it is remarkable that there should have been but two receptions until tonight in this room. One was to Daniel Webster, the other to Henry Clay, and a third is now to Abraham Lincoln. Meanwhile, Seward toured the North, where some compared it with the receptions that Whigs used to give to Henry Clay in his tours through the northern states. Quote, there is one difference to be remembered in considering the significance of these ovations to the great statesman, the New York Times said. There was no striking contrast in Mr. Clay's case. It was never unpopular to honor him. Mr. Seward personally would have likely disagreed with this New York Times report, which continued, it was never unpopular and almost a disgrace to be a Clay man, but how recent the time when to be a Seward man required the highest moral courage. For decades, one of these two great statesmen guided the Whig Party toward compromise as a loose national organization. But for the past decade leading up to this point, the other had bolted the Whigs for a new party after helping to damage the national nature of the Whig Party. Most importantly in this moment of crisis, the new Republican leaders, Lincoln and Seward, former Whigs with drastically different opinions of Henry Clay, could take inspiration for the coming struggle from Clay's unionism. Seward's early commitment to forcing the seceded states back into the Union was lukewarm at best, but Lincoln was resolute. Writing of secession back in the 1840s, Henry Clay had proclaimed, For my own part, I utterly deny the existence of any such right of a state, and I think an attempt to exercise it ought to be resisted to the last extremity, for it is in fact a question of union or no union. The New York Times proclaimed that Clay would personally be 
quote, for lopping off the hydra head of secession by the strong arm of the offended law. His stance was recounted as follows. There could be but one possible answer. The power, the authority, and the dignity of the government ought to be maintained and resistance put down at every hazard. My belief is that if it should be applied to South Carolina in the event of her secession, she should be speedily reduced to obedience and that the Union, instead of being weakened, would acquire additional strength. This was Lincoln's position in the secession crisis of 1860, that swift and stern action against the seceded states would restore the Union and that all efforts should be exhausted for that cause. Taking inspiration from Clay's speeches concerning the Compromise of 1850, Lincoln's inaugural address alluded to the national mystic chords of memory and the better angels of our nature. Critically important in this strategy of preserving the integrity of the nation, the New York Times said, Kentucky, which holds the ashes of Henry Clay, stands by the Union. Henry Clay may have been dead, but as Freelingheisen and Lincoln had predicted in their eulogies, his guidance was missed and still sought, and his shadow was felt in the great national disaster. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at Henry Clay, the founder of the Whig Party, and this story of the collapse of the Whig Party and its legacy leading into the days of Abraham Lincoln. I am reachable, as always, here at the podcast at Wigs for Wigs. That is W I G S F O R W H I G S at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts uh, about Henry Clay, about how, much, how sick you were of learning about him in U.S. History 1, because I'm sure you were. There's a joke among U.S. History teachers that, you know, uh, in life, Jesus is always the answer, but in U.S. History 1, it's always Henry Clay. So uh, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed. Reach out and tell me your, your questions, your comments, and I'll see you again soon for another episode of Wigs for Wigs. Take care, everybody. So welcome back, everybody, here on Wigs for Wigs. Today, as I said, I'm going to be talking about Henry Clay, who founded the Whig Party in opposition to Andrew Jackson. The Whig Party took their name from the Whigs in English politics, who were opposed to the, uh, all pow- the increasing power of the king. The Whigs stood up more for the rights of the common man, of the parliament. And so the Whig Party in America saw Andrew Jackson as a tyrannical, despotic figure, and therefore they took that name of the Whig Party, which had morphed out of what had been known as the National Republican Party, and they were led for many, many years, for almost their entire existence as a party, by Henry Clay of Kentucky. And when he passed away in the early 1850s, that's when we start to see the conflict escalate that's going to build to the Civil War. And so this is a paper I wrote uh, almost a decade ago now at this point, when I was in graduate school, titled The Death of Henry Clay. So strap in and get ready to hear all about the leader of the Whigs here on Whigs for Whigs. As a member of the Congress's great triumvirate with John Calhoun and Daniel Webster, these are names that you might remember from U.S. History 1, 
when you took it, wherever that may have been, those of you out there listening, Henry Clay established a reputation as the great compromiser for his repeated success at mediating between competing interests and maintaining national union throughout his five troublesome decades of public service. Abraham Lincoln called him the beau ideal of a statesman, and this, statement, this sentiment was shared by many throughout the United States and also abroad in Europe and in Latin America, where he was a fervent supporter of independence movements. His final great act on the national stage was the Compromise of 1850, aimed at sorting out the sectional troubles that resulted from the Mexican War, a war that Clay had personally vigorously opposed. He worked hard to reach that compromise solution, but being aged and in ill health, he was forced to relinquish some of his leadership responsibilities to a younger generation of politicians, namely Stephen Douglas. Clay died in 1852, and the following several years only accelerated the nation's course towards disunion and civil war. In historical retrospection, this could spark a curiosity concerning the effect that an immortal Henry Clay may have had on the great national emergency. Such speculation is counterproductive, but it is useful to examine several issues related to his exit from the national stage. The conditions of the nation at the time of Clay's death, the level of success he was finding in his final years in terms of orchestrating compromises, the nation's reaction to his death, and the ways in which he was remembered at the time of the, of the secession crisis of 1860. Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson cast their tremendous shadows over half a century of American politics. They were bitter political rivals, the fathers of rival parties, the Whigs and the Democrats respectively, and their personal disdain for each other was palpable. It is telling that Andrew Jackson's final words were allegedly that he wished he had shot Henry Clay and hanged John Calhoun. This great republic has been convulsed to its center by the great divisions which have sprung from their respective opinions, policy, and personal destinies, Congressman Charles Faulkner proclaimed. Yet these two titans of the antebellum era were equally committed to the preservation of the American Union. The movement towards disunion of the nation was led by one of the other members of the Great Triumvirate, John C. Calhoun, an erstwhile ally of Clay in the Congress, who had heated clashes with the fiery President Jackson. The nullification crisis of 1832 prompted the bizarre political spectacle of Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay actually working together, passing the force bill through Congress and a new tariff to alleviate the troubles and save the country. In this age of political titans, the preservation of the Republic trumped party politics, even among bitter political rivals like Clay and Jackson. An illustrative event of this importance of national preservation occurred during the presidency of Jackson's protege, James K. Polk, who defeated Clay in the perennial presidential loser's bitterest electoral failure, which, by the way, Henry Clay lost in 1844 to James K. Polk. There is rampant evidence, 
like real evidence of voter fraud in the 1844 election. There really were counties in Louisiana, for example, parishes, I guess I should say, where more people voted than were registered to vote in those counties. So, you know, recent people charging voter fraud in, let's say, 2020 or even 2016 when a certain person won and still claimed there was voter fraud against him. You know, bullshit. But this was real voter fraud that led to Polk winning the 1844 election. But anyway, on February 4th, 1848, as Polk's presidency was coming towards its end, Clay paid a visit to Polk in the president in the executive mansion. The president had an anticipated a courtesy call from the man who had raged against just about every political initiative of the Jackson Polk party for two decades. They talked of each other's of each other's families and they joked of supporting each other if either ran for president again. The touching episode, according to historian David Heidler, the touching episode reflected an underlying reality of American politics. However intensely the battles are fought and however copiously the animosities flow, all parties are expected to accept the political outcomes in good grace and refrain from the kinds of personal enmities that could undermine the delicate balance of democracy. You know, just reading this again, I'm reading this paper for the first time in years. I'm reminded of President Obama's eulogy for my hero, John McCain, where he talked about McCain coming to the White House. And even though they disagreed bitterly and those disagreements didn't go away, they could talk with, with each other. They could laugh with each other. They could learn from each other. And they talked about each other's families and each other's dreams and how much each of them loved the country. That's kind of what I'm, I picture here as I, as I hear David Heiler, the historian, talk about this meeting between Polk and Clay. For two men who had worked for the improvement and the prestige of the American nation, divergent as their visions for the country may have been, the era they knew was clearly coming to an end. Mr. Polk's war, which Clay had vigorously opposed, was destined to exacerbate the sectional debates within the country and bring a new generation of leaders to the forefront. As historian Robert Merry wrote, these were the two surviving lions of the old politics. And of course, senior lions like to mingle with other senior lions. This was a slightly bizarre statement by Merry because both Calhoun and triumvirate member Daniel Webster were still alive in 1848. However, Merry was correct in writing, quote, the old era of politics was fading now, and these gentlemen of the old era were fading with it. Looking back on all the battles and battle scars of their political rivalry, they shared a commonality of nostalgia that can never be appreciated by the younger lions of either party vying for dominance of the nation. End quote. This next generation of lions, men like William Seward, Stephen Douglas, William Yancey inherited the partisan animosity of the political predecessors, but without that national spirit and willingness to compromise. Seward, the New York leader of Free Soil Whigs, spoke of an irrepressible conflict between North and South, and quote, admitted to plotting that slavery zealotry might goad Southern Democrats, and thus the slave power dominated Democratic Party, 
to demand outrageously much for slavery. Then Whigs could whip up greater anti-Southern and therefore anti-Democratic Party hatreds in the North. Yancey became a leader of the Fire Eaters, pushing for secession if the slave power was ever threatened. Douglas became a doughface, a northerner who always tried to give in to the South as much as possible in order to find that political middle ground, but ultimately only muddling himself in ambiguity and confusion. David M. Potter could not resist the urge to compare this cast of characters to a literary or stage drama. Webster was, quote, the kind of senator that Richard Wagner might have created at the height of his powers, end quote, and was Jove-like. Calhoun was, quote, the most majestic champion of error since Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost. And Clay, the old conciliator, who had already saved the Union twice and now came out of retirement to save it once again before he died. These three were relics of a golden age who still towered like giants above the creatures of a later time. Among those of the later time, there was an able supporting cast. There were Seward, John Bell, Stephen Douglas, Thomas Hart Benton, Lewis Cass, Jefferson Davis, Sam and Chase, who would have been stars on any other stage, according to Potter. The failure of Clay and Webster to sew up the incomplete national fabric, begun by the founders, left the issue in this next generation's hands, with the disciples of Calhoun's error and their radical adversaries in the North, setting the drama on a course toward national tragedy, Clay personally mistrusted many of these younger men, dubious about their commitment to the integrity of the nation. Some of this was personal. Since 1839, he had felt betrayed by William Henry Seward and by fellow New York Whig leader Thurlow Weed, who Clay believed had abandoned the principles of the party and been personally deceptive after Seward supported Winfield Scott and William Henry Harrison for presidential nominations over Henry Clay. This came after Clay had received assurances from a friend in New York that Governor Seward and Thurlow Weed are not only friendly to your election, but warmly and zealously so. But they deem it inexpedient to make public declarations of their preference. End quote. Despite himself being a master of backroom politics, as a legislative leader must be, Clay had a deep mistrust for men like Seward, who professed support privately, but publicly did not follow through on the promise. He also feared the effect that the abolitionist movement growing in the northern states. Quote, show that the agitation of the slavery questions in the free states will first destroy all harmony and finally lead to disunion. Clay advised Calvin Colton in 1843, quote, that the consequences of disunion, perpetual war, the extinction of the African race, ultimate military despotism, that's what Clay foresaw from growing partisanship and animosity in politics. Clay worried about the abolitionist belief expressed by Seward in Congress that there is a higher law than the Constitution. 
considering the influence that Seward wielded in the 1850s following Clay's death, the power he was later perceived as possessing within the Lincoln administration, and his divide from the methods of Henry Clay, an examination of Seward's speech is very valuable, as it echoed throughout the 1850s in the paranoid minds of secessionist Southerners. Seward, opposing Clay's final grand act on the national stage, the Compromise of 1850, proclaimed, quote, I am opposed to any such compromise in any and all forms, because while admitting the purity and the patriotism of all from whom it is my misfortune to differ, I think all legislative compromises radically wrong and essentially vicious, end quote. To Clay, this statement must have, must have stung as strongly as Seward's perceived portrayal in the Whig Convention of 1839. The time of loyal opposition like that Clay embodied during the administration of President Polk was clearly fading into the past. The sections were dividing along a deepening chasm. Webster for, spoke four days before Mr. Seward, delivering his most famous speech, in which he spoke not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a Northern man, but as an American and a member of the Senate of the United States. Unfortunately, the rest of that speech is largely forgotten by historical memory. Webster, echoing Clay, promoted the power and compromising ability of Congress, saying, quote, It is fortunate that there is a Senate of the United States, a body not yet moved from its propriety, and a body to which the country looks with confidence for wise, moderate, patriotic, and healing counsels in the midst of strong agitations. He lamented, quote, The imprisoned winds are let loose. The east, the west, the north, and the stormy south all combine to throw the whole ocean into commotion. Webster attributed more of the storm to the south than to abolitionist agitators in the north, but like his fellow aging titan Henry Clay, he feared for the future of the Union due to the growing antagonism toward compromise. In regard to the stormy South and its leaders who threatened secession, Clay was deeply troubled. Like Webster, Clay feared that the younger generation of legislators was losing sight of the national responsibilities of the Congress. Quote, I am not surprised at your mortification by having imputed to you the epithet of old politician, he wrote to fellow Whig Nathan Sargent. If I had yielded to similar feelings, I should a thousand times have abandoned politics forever. But we must recollect that it is our country that we have to serve and that it is our duty to serve it, although we are treated unjustly, end quote. This liberal sense of American nationalism was being crushed by the sectional and ethnic concerns of the 1850s, though. Again, are you hearing echoes here in 2022? History doesn't repeat itself, but it very often rhymes, as Mark Twain allegedly said. Such fiery elements were already growing in numbers, power, and influence by the time Webster and Clay exited the national stage. To Clay and his Kentucky ally, John Crittenden, both sides were guilty of driving the nation towards disunion and war. Clay and Crittenden were quick to deplore abolitionists and Republican free soilers alike as dangerous to domestic peace 
and equally critical of Southern fire eaters. As far as the two aged Kentucky statesmen were concerned, the antagonistic efforts of the two sides ignored the fact that California and the other territories would likely not be settled for decades. And thus we're making a present evil out of an apprehension of a future that may never occur. Both proponents of gradual compensated emancipation, these two border state leaders deplored the enthusiasm of the younger generation. Their own vision, which inspired the young Whig Abraham Lincoln, had the three main features, gradual, compensation, and the vote of the people, all of which abolitionists abhorred. Lincoln, the clay disciple, referred to abolitionists as fiends and stated, I can express all my views on the slavery question by quotations from Henry Clay. To those who ultimately formed the conservative wing of the Republican Party after the collapse of the Whigs, Henry Clay continued to be an idol in his unionist and gradualist ideologies. Accordingly, Lincoln once proclaimed, quote, if there be any man in the Republican Party who is impatient of the constitutional obligations bound around it, he is misplaced and ought to find a, some, a place somewhere else. End quote. Extremes were the enemy to Clay and his ilk because they closed the minds of men to the co value of compromise for the sake of the nation. So welcome back everybody here on Wigs for Wigs. Today, as I said, I'm going to be talking about Henry Clay who founded the Whig Party in opposition to Andrew Jackson. The Whig Party took their name from the Whigs in English politics, who were opposed to the, uh, all pow the increasing power of the king. The Whigs stood up more for the rights of the common man, of the parliament. And so the Whig Party in America saw Andrew Jackson as a tyrannical, despotic figure. And therefore, they took that name of the Whig Party, which had morphed out of what had been known as the National Republican Party. And they were led for many, many years, for almost their entire existence as a party, by Henry Clay of Kentucky. And when he passed away in the early 1850s, that's when we start to see the conflict escalate that's going to build to the Civil War. And so this is a paper I wrote uh, almost a decade ago now at this point, when I was in graduate school, titled The Death of Henry Clay. So strap in and get ready to hear all about the leader of the Whigs here on Whigs for Whigs. As a member of the Congress's great triumvirate with John Calhoun and Daniel Webster, these are names that you might remember from U.S. History 1 when you took it, wherever that may have been, those of you out there listening, Henry Clay established a reputation as the great compromiser for his repeated success at mediating between competing interests and maintaining national union throughout his five troublesome decades of public service. Abraham Lincoln called him the beau ideal of a statesman, and this, statement, this sentiment was shared by many throughout the United States and also abroad in Europe and in Latin America, where he was a fervent supporter of independence movements. His final great act on the national stage was the Compromise of 1850, aimed at sorting out the sectional troubles that resulted from the Mexican War, a war that Clay had personally vigorously opposed. He worked hard to reach that compromise solution, but being aged and in ill health, 
he was forced to relinquish some of his leadership responsibilities to a younger generation of politicians, namely Stephen Douglas. Clay died in 1852, and the following several years only accelerated the nation's course towards disunion and civil war. In historical retrospection, this could spark a curiosity concerning the effect that an immortal Henry Clay may have had on the great national emergency. Such speculation is counterproductive, but it is useful to examine several issues related to his exit from the national stage. The conditions of the nation at the time of Clay's death, the level of success he was finding in his final years in terms of orchestrating compromises, the nation's reaction to his death, and the ways in which he was remembered at the time of the, of the secession crisis of 1860. Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson cast their tremendous shadows over half a century of American politics. They were bitter political rivals, the fathers of rival parties, the Whigs and the Democrats respectively, and their personal disdain for each other was palpable. It is telling that Andrew Jackson's final words were allegedly that he wished he had shot Henry Clay and hanged John Calhoun. This great republic has been convulsed to its center by the great divisions which have sprung from their respective opinions, policy, and personal destinies, Congressman Charles Faulkner proclaimed. Yet these two titans of the antebellum era were equally committed to the preservation of the American Union. The movement towards disunion of the nation was led by one of the other members of the Great Triumvirate, John C. Calhoun, an erstwhile ally of Clay in the Congress, who had heated clashes with the fiery President Jackson. The nullification crisis of 1832 prompted the bizarre political spectacle of Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay actually working together, passing the force bill through Congress and a new tariff to alleviate the troubles and save the country. In this age of political titans, the preservation of the Republic trumped party politics, even among bitter political rivals like Clay and Jackson. An illustrative event of this importance of national preservation occurred during the presidency of Jackson's protege, James K. Polk, who defeated Clay in the perennial presidential loser's bitterest electoral failure, which, by the way, Henry Clay lost in 1844 to James K. Polk. There is rampant evidence, like real evidence of voter fraud in the 1844 election. There really were counties in Louisiana, for example, parishes, I guess I should say, where more people voted than were registered to vote in those counties. So, you know, recent people charging voter fraud in, let's say, 2020, or even 2016, when a certain person won and still claimed there was voter fraud against him. You know, bullshit. But this was real voter fraud that led to Polk winning the 1844 election. But anyway, on February 4th, 1848, as Polk's presidency was coming towards its end, Clay paid a visit to Polk in the president in the executive mansion. The president had an anticipated a courtesy call from the man who had raged against just about every political initiative of the Jackson Polk party for two decades. They talked of each other's of each other's families 
And they joked of supporting each other if either ran for president again. The touching episode, according to historian David Heidler, the touching episode reflected an underlying reality of American politics. However intensely the battles are fought, and however copiously the animosities flow, all parties are expected to accept the political outcomes in good grace and refrain from the kinds of personal enmities that could undermine the delicate balance of democracy. You know, just reading this again, I'm reading this paper for the first time in years. I'm reminded of President Obama's eulogy for my hero, John McCain, where he talked about McCain coming to the White House. And even though they disagreed bitterly and those disagreements didn't go away, they could talk with, with each other. They could laugh with each other. They could learn from each other. And they talked about each other's families and each other's dreams and how much each of them loved the country. That's kind of what I'm, I picture here as I, as I hear David Heiler, the historian, talk about this meeting between Polk and Clay. For two men who had worked for the improvement and the prestige of the American nation, divergent as their visions for the country may have been, the era they knew was clearly coming to an end. Mr. Polk's war, which Clay had vigorously opposed, was destined to exacerbate the sectional debates within the country and bring a new generation of leaders to the forefront. As historian Robert Murray wrote, these were the two surviving lions of the old politics. And of course, senior lions like to mingle with other senior lions. This was a slightly bizarre statement by Mary, because both Calhoun and triumvirate member Daniel Webster were still alive in 1848. However, Mary was correct in writing, quote, the old era of politics was fading now, and these gentlemen of the old era were fading with it. Looking back on all the battles and battle scars of the political rivalry, they shared a commonality of nostalgia that can never be appreciated by the younger lions of either party vying for dominance of the nation, end quote. This next generation of lions, men like William Seward, Stephen Douglas, William Yancey, inherited the partisan animosity of the political predecessors, but without that national spirit and willingness to compromise. Seward, the New York leader of Free Soil Whigs, spoke of an irrepressible conflict between North and South, and quote, admitted to plotting that slavery zealotry might goad Southern Democrats, and thus the slave power dominated Democratic Party, to demand outrageously much for slavery. Then Whigs could whip up greater anti-Southern and therefore anti-Democratic Party hatreds in the North. Yancey became a leader of the fire eaters, pushing for secession if the slave power was ever threatened. Douglas became a doe face, a northerner who always tried to give in to the South as much as possible in order to find that political middle ground, but ultimately only muddling himself in ambiguity and confusion. David M. Potter could not resist the urge to compare this cast of characters to a literary or stage drama. Webster was, quote, the kind of senator that Richard Wagner might have created at the height of his powers, end quote, and was Jove-like, 
Calhoun was, quote, the most majestic champion of error since Milton Satan in Paradise Lost. And Clay, the old conciliator, who had already saved the Union twice and now came out of retirement to save it once again before he died. These three were relics of a golden age who still towered like giants above the creatures of a later time. Among those of the later time, there was an able supporting cast. There were Seward, John Bell, Stephen Douglas, Thomas Hart Benton, Lewis Cass, Jefferson Davis, Sam and Chase, who would have been stars on any other stage, according to Potter. The failure of Clay and Webster to sew up the incomplete national fabric, begun by the founders, left the issue in this next generation's hands, with the disciples of Calhoun's error and their radical adversaries in the North, setting the drama on a course toward national tragedy. Clay personally mistrusted many of these younger men, dubious about their commitment to the integrity of the nation. Some of this was personal. Since 1839, he had felt betrayed by William Henry Seward and by fellow New York Whig leader Thurlow Weed, who Clay believed had abandoned the principles of the party and been personally deceptive after Seward supported Winfield Scott and William Henry Harrison for presidential nominations over Henry Clay. This came after Clay had received assurances from a friend in New York that Governor Seward and Thurlow Weed are not only friendly to your election, but warmly and zealously so. But they deem it inexpedient to make public declarations of their preference. End quote. Despite himself being a master of backroom politics, as a legislative leader must be, Clay had a deep mistrust for men like Seward, who professed support privately, but publicly did not follow through on the promise. He also feared the effect that the abolitionist movement growing in the northern states. Quote, show that the agitation of the slavery questions in the free states will first destroy all harmony and finally lead to disunion. Clay advised Calvin Colton in 1843. Quote, that the consequences of disunion, perpetual war, the extinction of the African race, ultimate military despotism, that's what Clay foresaw from growing partisanship and animosity in politics. Clay worried about the abolitionist belief expressed by Seward in Congress that there is a higher law than the Constitution. Considering the influence that Seward wielded in the 1850s following Clay's death, the power he was later perceived as possessing within the Lincoln administration and his divide from the methods of Henry Clay, an examination of Seward's speech is very valuable as it echoed throughout the 1850s in the paranoid minds of secessionist Southerners. Seward, opposing Clay's final grand act on the national stage, the Compromise of 1850, proclaimed, quote, I am opposed to any such compromise in any and all forms, because while admitting the purity and the patriotism of all from whom it is my misfortune to differ, I think all legislative compromises radically wrong and essentially vicious, end quote. To Clay, this statement must have, must have stung as strongly as Seward's perceived portrayal in the Whig Convention of 1839, 
the time of loyal opposition like that Clay embodied during the administration of President Polk was clearly fading into the past. The sections were dividing along a deepening chasm. Webster for, spoke four days before Mr. Seward, delivering his most famous speech, in which he spoke not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a Northern man, but as an American and a member of the Senate of the United States. Unfortunately, the rest of that speech is largely forgotten by historical memory. Webster, echoing Clay, promoted the power and compromising ability of Congress, saying, quote, It is fortunate that there is a Senate of the United States, a body not yet moved from its propriety, and a body to which the country looks with confidence for wise, moderate, patriotic, and healing counsels in the midst of strong agitations. He lamented, quote, The imprisoned winds are let loose. The east, the west, the north, and the stormy south all combine to throw the whole ocean into commotion. Webster attributed more of the storm to the south than to abolitionist agitators in the north, but like his fellow aging titan Henry Clay, he feared for the future of the Union due to the growing antagonism toward compromise. In regard to the stormy South and its leaders who threatened secession, Clay was deeply troubled. Like Webster, Clay feared that the younger generation of legislators was losing sight of the national responsibilities of the Congress. Quote, I am not surprised at your mortification by having imputed to you the epithet of old politician, he wrote to fellow Whig Nathan Sargent. If I had yielded to similar feelings, I should a thousand times have abandoned politics forever. But we must recollect that it is our country that we have to serve and that it is our duty to serve it, although we are treated unjustly, end quote. This liberal sense of American nationalism was being crushed by the sectional and ethnic concerns of the 1850s, though. Again, are you hearing echoes here in 2022? History doesn't repeat itself, but it very often rhymes, as Mark Twain allegedly said. Such fiery elements were already growing in numbers, power, and influence by the time Webster and Clay exited the national stage. To Clay and his Kentucky ally, John Crittenden, both sides were guilty of driving the nation towards disunion and war. Clay and Crittenden were quick to deplore abolitionists and Republican free soilers alike as dangerous to domestic peace and equally critical of Southern fire eaters. As far as the two aged Kentucky statesmen were concerned, the antagonistic efforts of the two sides ignored the fact that California and the other territories would likely not be settled for decades. And thus we're making a present evil out of an apprehension of a future that may never occur. Both proponents of gradual compensated emancipation, these two border state leaders deplored the enthusiasm of the younger generation. Their own vision, which inspired the young Whig Abraham Lincoln, had the three main features, gradual, compensation, and the vote of the people, all of which abolitionists abhorred. Lincoln, the clay disciple, referred to abolitionists as fiends and stated, 
I can express all my views on the slavery question by quotations from Henry Clay. To those who ultimately formed the conservative wing of the Republican Party after the collapse of the Whigs, Henry Clay continued to be an idol in his unionist and gradualist ideologies. Accordingly, Lincoln once proclaimed, quote, If there be any man in the Republican Party who is impatient of the constitutional obligations bound around it, he is misplaced and ought to find a, some, a place somewhere else. End quote. Extremes were the enemy to Clay and his ilk because they closed the minds of men to the co- value of compromise for the sake of the nation. So welcome back, everybody, here on Wigs for Wigs. Today, as I said, I'm going to be talking about Henry Clay, who founded the Whig Party in opposition to Andrew Jackson. The Whig Party took their name from the Whigs in English politics, who were opposed to the, uh, all pow- the increasing power of the king. The Whigs stood up more for the rights of the common man, of the parliament. And so the Whig Party in America saw Andrew Jackson as a tyrannical, despotic figure. And therefore, they took that name of the Whig Party, which had morphed out of what had been known as the National Republican Party. And they were led for many, many years, for almost their entire existence as a party, by Henry Clay of Kentucky. And when he passed away in the early 1850s, that's when we start to see the conflict escalate that's going to build to the Civil War. And so this is a paper I wrote uh, almost a decade ago now at this point, when I was in graduate school, titled The Death of Henry Clay. So strap in and get ready to hear all about the leader of the Whigs here on Whigs for Whigs. As a member of the Congress's great triumvirate with John Calhoun and Daniel Webster, these are names that you might remember from U.S. History 1 when you took it, wherever that may have been, those of you out there listening. Henry Clay established a reputation as the great compromiser for his repeated success at mediating between competing interests and maintaining national union throughout his five troublesome decades of public service. Abraham Lincoln called him the beau ideal of a statesman, and this, statement, this sentiment was shared by many throughout the United States and also abroad in Europe and in Latin America, where he was a fervent supporter of independence movements. His final great act on the national stage was the Compromise of 1850, aimed at sorting out the sectional troubles that resulted from the Mexican War, a war that Clay had personally vigorously opposed. He worked hard to reach that compromise solution, but being aged and in ill health, he was forced to relinquish some of his leadership responsibilities to a younger generation of politicians, namely Stephen Douglas. Clay died in 1852, and the following several years only accelerated the nation's course towards disunion and civil war. In historical retrospection, this could spark a curiosity concerning the effect that an immortal Henry Clay may have had on the great national emergency. Such speculation is counterproductive, but it is useful to examine several issues related to his exit from the national stage. The conditions of the nation at the time of Clay's death, the level of success he was finding in his final years in terms of orchestrating compromises, the nation's reaction to his death, 
and the ways in which he was remembered at the time of the of the secession crisis of 1860. Henry Clay and Andrew Jackson cast their tremendous shadows over half a century of American politics. They were bitter political rivals, the fathers of rival parties, the Whigs and the Democrats respectively, and their personal disdain for each other was palpable. It is telling that Andrew Jackson's final words were allegedly that he wished he had shot Henry Clay and hanged John Calhoun. This great republic has been convulsed to its center by the great divisions which have sprung from their respective opinions, policy, and personal destinies, Congressman Charles Faulkner proclaimed. Yet these two titans of the antebellum era were equally committed to the preservation of the American Union. The movement towards disunion of the nation was led by one of the other members of the Great Triumvirate, John C. Calhoun, an erstwhile ally of Clay in the Congress, who had heated clashes with the fiery President Jackson. The nullification crisis of 1832 prompted the bizarre political spectacle of Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay actually working together, passing the force bill through Congress and a new tariff to alleviate the troubles and save the country. In this age of political titans, the preservation of the Republic trumped party politics, even among bitter political rivals like Clay and Jackson. An illustrative event of this importance of national preservation occurred during the presidency of Jackson's protege, James K. Polk, who defeated Clay in the perennial presidential loser's bitterest electoral failure, which, by the way, Henry Clay lost in 1844 to James K. Polk. There is rampant evidence, like real evidence, of voter fraud in the 1844 election. There really were counties in Louisiana, for example, parishes, I guess I should say, where more people voted than were registered to vote in those counties. So, you know, recent people charging voter fraud in, let's say, 2020, or even 2016, when a certain person won and still claimed there was voter fraud against him. You know, bullshit. But this was real voter fraud that led to Polk winning the 1844 election. But anyway, on February 4th, 1848, as Polk's presidency was coming towards its end, Clay paid a visit to Polk in the president in the executive mansion. The president had an anticipated a courtesy call from the man who had raged against just about every political initiative of the Jackson Polk party for two decades. They talked of each other's of each other's families and they joked of supporting each other if either ran for president again. The touching episode, according to historian David Heidler, the touching episode reflected an underlying reality of American politics. However intensely the battles are fought, and however copiously the animosities flow, all parties are expected to accept the political outcomes in good grace and refrain from the kinds of personal enmities that could undermine the delicate balance of democracy. You know, just reading this again, I'm reading this paper for the first time in years. I'm reminded of President Obama's eulogy for my hero, John McCain, where he talked about McCain coming to the White House. And even though they disagreed bitterly and those disagreements didn't go away, 
They could talk with, with each other. They could laugh with each other. They could learn from each other. And they talked about each other's families and each other's dreams and how much each of them loved the country. That's kind of what I'm, I picture here as I, as I hear David Heiler, the historian, talk about this meeting between Polk and Clay. For two men who had worked for the improvement and the prestige of the American nation, divergent as their visions for the country may have been, the era they knew was clearly coming to an end. Mr. Polk's war, which Clay had vigorously opposed, was destined to exacerbate the sectional debates within the country and bring a new generation of leaders to the forefront. As historian Robert Merry wrote, these were the two surviving lions of the old politics. And of course, senior lions like to mingle with other senior lions. This was a slightly bizarre statement by Mary, because both Calhoun and triumvirate member Daniel Webster were still alive in 1848. However, Mary was correct in writing, quote, the old era of politics was fading now, and these gentlemen of the old era were fading with it. Looking back on all the battles and battle scars of their political rivalry, they shared a commonality of nostalgia that can never be appreciated by the younger lions of either party vying for dominance of the nation, end quote. This next generation of lions, men like William Seward, Stephen Douglas, William Yancey, inherited the partisan animosity of the political predecessors, but without that national spirit and willingness to compromise. Seward, the New York leader of Free Soil Whigs, spoke of an irrepressible conflict between North and South, and, quote, admitted to plotting that slavery zealotry might goad Southern Democrats, and thus the slave power-dominated Democratic Party, to demand outrageously much for slavery. Then Whigs could whip up greater anti-Southern and therefore anti-Democratic Party hatreds in the North. Yancey became a leader of the Fire Eaters, pushing for secession if the slave power was ever threatened. Douglas became a doughface, a northerner who always tried to give in to the South as much as possible in order to find that political middle ground, but ultimately only muddling himself in ambiguity and confusion. David M. Potter could not resist the urge to compare this cast of characters to a literary or stage drama. Webster was, quote, the kind of senator that Richard Wagner might have created at the height of his powers, end quote, and was Jove-like. Calhoun was, quote, the most majestic champion of error since Milton's Satan in Paradise Lost. And Clay, the old conciliator, who had already saved the Union twice and now came out of retirement to save it once again before he died. These three were relics of a golden age who still towered like giants above the creatures of a later time. Among those of the later time, there was an able supporting cast. There were Seward, John Bell, Stephen Douglas, Thomas Hart Benton, Lewis Cass, Jefferson Davis, Sam and Chase, who would have been stars on any other stage, according to Potter. The failure of Clay and Webster to sew up the incomplete national fabric 
begun by the founders, left the issue in this next generation's hands, with the disciples of Calhoun's error and their radical adversaries in the North, setting the drama on a course toward national tragedy. Clay personally mistrusted many of these younger men, dubious about their commitment to the integrity of the nation. Some of this was personal. Since 1839, he had felt betrayed by William Henry Seward and by fellow New York Whig leader Thurlow Weed, who Clay believed had abandoned the principles of the party and been personally deceptive after Seward supported Winfield Scott and William Henry Harrison for presidential nominations over Henry Clay. This came after Clay had received assurances from a friend in New York that Governor Seward and Thurlow Weed are not only friendly to your election, but warmly and zealously so. But they deem it inexpedient to make public declarations of their preference. End quote. Despite himself being a master of backroom politics, as a legislative leader must be, Clay had a deep mistrust for men like Seward, who professed support privately, but publicly did not follow through on the promise. He also feared the effect that the abolitionist movement growing in the northern states. Quote, show that the agitation of the slavery questions in the free states will first destroy all harmony and finally lead to disunion. Clay advised Calvin Colton in 1843. Quote, that the consequences of disunion, perpetual war, the extinction of the African race, ultimate military despotism, that's what Clay foresaw from growing partisanship and animosity in politics. Clay worried about the abolitionist belief expressed by Seward in Congress that there is a higher law than the Constitution. Considering the influence that Seward wielded in the 1850s following Clay's death, the power he was later perceived as possessing within the Lincoln administration and his divide from the methods of Henry Clay, an examination of Seward's speech is very valuable as it echoed throughout the 1850s in the paranoid minds of secessionist Southerners. Seward, opposing Clay's final grand act on the national stage, the Compromise of 1850, proclaimed, quote, I am opposed to any such compromise in any and all forms, because while admitting the purity and the patriotism of all from whom it is my misfortune to differ, I think all legislative compromises radically wrong and essentially vicious, end quote. To Clay, this statement must have, must have stung as strongly as Seward's perceived portrayal in the Whig Convention of 1839. The time of loyal opposition like that Clay embodied during the administration of President Polk was clearly fading into the past. The sections were dividing along a deepening chasm. Webster for, spoke four days before Mr. Seward, delivering his most famous speech, in which he spoke not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a Northern man, but as an American and a member of the Senate of the United States. Unfortunately, the rest of that speech is largely forgotten by historical memory. Webster, echoing Clay, promoted the power and compromising ability of Congress, saying, quote, it is fortunate that there is a Senate of the United States, a body not yet moved from its propriety, and a body to which the country looks with confidence for wise 
moderate, patriotic, and healing councils in the midst of strong agitations. He lamented, quote, the imprisoned winds are let loose. The east, the west, the north, and the stormy south all combine to throw the whole ocean into commotion. Webster attributed more of the storm to the south than to abolitionist agitators in the north, but like his fellow aging titan Henry Clay, he feared for the future of the Union due to the growing antagonism toward compromise. In regard to the stormy south and its leaders who threatened secession, Clay was deeply troubled. Like Webster, Clay feared that the younger generation of legislators was losing sight of the national responsibilities of the Congress. Quote, I am not surprised at your mortification by having imputed to you the epithet of old politician, he wrote to fellow Whig Nathan Sargent. If I had yielded to similar feelings, I should a thousand times have abandoned politics forever. But we must recollect that it is our country that we have to serve and that it is our duty to serve it, although we are treated unjustly, end quote. This liberal sense of American nationalism was being crushed by the sectional and ethnic concerns of the 1850s, though. Again, are you hearing echoes here in 2022? History doesn't repeat itself, but it very often rhymes, as Mark Twain allegedly said. Such fiery elements were already growing in numbers, power, and influence by the time Webster and Clay exited the national stage. To Clay and his Kentucky ally, John Crittenden, both sides were guilty of driving the nation towards disunion and war. Clay and Crittenden were quick to deplore abolitionists and Republican free soilers alike as dangerous to domestic peace and equally critical of Southern fire eaters. As far as the two aged Kentucky statesmen were concerned, the antagonistic efforts of the two sides ignored the fact that California and the other territories would likely not be settled for decades. And thus we're making a present evil out of an apprehension of a future that may never occur. Both proponents of gradual compensated emancipation, these two border state leaders deplored the enthusiasm of the younger generation. Their own vision, which inspired the young Whig Abraham Lincoln, had the three main features, gradual, compensation, and the vote of the people, all of which abolitionists abhorred. Lincoln, the clay disciple, referred to abolitionists as fiends and stated, I can express all my views on the slavery question by quotations from Henry Clay. To those who ultimately formed the conservative wing of the Republican Party after the collapse of the Whigs, Henry Clay continued to be an idol in his unionist and gradualist ideologies. Accordingly, Lincoln once proclaimed, quote, if there be any man in the Republican Party who is impatient of the constitutional obligations bound around it, he is misplaced and ought to find a, some, a place somewhere else, end quote. Extremes were the enemy to Clay and his ilk because they closed the minds of men to the co value of compromise for the sake of the nation, 